the last four weeks, we've been in a series entitled Made for Mission. And we've, we've said each and every week that there is a biblical truth that every believer, every child of God is called by God to live on mission with God. And we're to join him on his mission. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've seen what we're supposed to say who we're supposed to say it to, and why we should live on mission. And if you've, you've missed the last couple of messages, you can catch up on, on, on uh, SoundCloud or podcast or our website. But how many of you, because we're going to finish it up tonight, this morning, how many of you, by a show of hands, know the first name of your grandparents? Who knows your grandparents' first names? Okay, most of us. How many of you know your great-grandparents' first names? Okay, fewer. How, know, how many of you know your great-great-grandparents' first names? couple. Anybody know their great-great-great? Yeah. Truth is, and this is not a very encouraging truth, but you're just a couple decades from being forgotten. I mean, honestly. In a couple generations, people aren't going to know who you are. People that are a direct result of you. Your great, great, great grandchildren will have no idea who you were or what you did or anything like that. And that's a, that's a, a kind of sobering thought. But here's the good news. God is calling your life to be bigger than your lifetime. God is calling you to live on mission with him in such a way that your life on earth could impact eternity. Maybe people on earth in a couple of generations won't remember you, but you will have ramifications through eternity for what you've done. So today we're going to look at a scene from the life of Peter. Now, Peter, I like Peter because Peter had a great knack for putting his foot in his mouth. He had an incredible ability for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Anyone ever done that? I mean, we... We all do it. We all say something. As soon as you say it, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. You know, you kind of want like a four-second delay on your words so you can pull them right back. And, but Peter, man, he was always messing up. He, was, he had a temper. He, he, was, he was hot-headed. Man, he was just, he, Peter, Peter was a mess. And that's why I like Peter because I can relate to Peter. Because I say things I shouldn't say sometimes. I do things I shouldn't do sometimes. I stick my foot in my mouth sometimes. And so I can relate to Peter, he was always getting in trouble for speaking before he thought. And so this morning, we're going to look at two back-to-back stories found in the book of Luke. So starting in uh, chapter number 8, verse number 40. This thing's messing up on us. All right. The Bible says, And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. And so, of course, last week, this is continuing from the story we saw last week where Jesus goes over to uh, the, the land of Gennesaret, and he sees the demon-possessed man in the, the cemetery, and he witnesses this man. He's cast the demons out of him and tells this guy, go in and tell everyone in your household what's been done to you. And then Jesus comes back across the Sea of Galilee, and as soon as he lands, he's met by the people who they want to see him there. They're encouraged by him. But then this man named Jairus comes up and sees him. And Jairus, the Bible says, he is a ruler of the synagogue. And that is a big deal. 
Jairus is a powerful man. He is the equivalent of like a congressman in our society. People know who he is. People know what he, what he looks like. He's got recognition. He's got authority. He's got power. He's got pull. He is a recognized figure in the community. And so if this synagogue leader were to become a follower of Christ, can you imagine the ramifications throughout the community? If this, this powerful man, this ruler of the synagogue, this well-known figure were to become a follower of Jesus, just the people of the community, would, it would really do wonders, you know, speaking humanly, it would do incredible wonders for Jesus' ministry. He could influence the entire city and the surrounding region. And so logistically speaking, this is a tremendous opportunity for Jesus. And I'm sure Jesus didn't look at it that way, but his disciples did. I'm sure Peter and John and them were like, man, if we can, if we can get this guy on board, if we can get this guy to start following us, can you imagine? Man, people will stop making fun of us. People will stop picking on us. People will really have some authority and some pull in this city. And so they were, they were eager to go help this influential leader. But look what happens next in verse number 43. And a woman having an issue of blood, 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. So this woman who's got an issue of blood, she comes to Jesus, and she just doesn't even go to see him. She just kind of touches his garment. As soon as she touches the hem of his garment, she is instantly healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and thou sayest, who touched me? And Jesus said, somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And Jesus said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Now, this is an incredible scene, but to me it's, it's, it's a little bit funny. You've got Jesus walking from the docks, heading to Jairus' house. He's got huge crowds around him. They're pushing in. They're pressing in. And, I mean, let's face it, his, his bodyguard detail is not the best in the business, so they're not keeping him at bay like they should. And so all kinds of people are coming up to him, you know, probably bringing their kids and saying, oh, Jesus, would you bless my child, and trying to touch him and trying to talk to him and all those things. And so as they're walking through this crowd, suddenly Jesus says, hey, somebody touched me. And Peter, always Peter, says, what do you mean? What do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. How are we supposed to know what you're talking about, Jesus? This is crazy. Let's just get off this street. There should be people here. Everybody's touching you. How dare you ask who touched me? Suddenly, then Jesus, he stops on the way to this big ministry opportunity to deal with someone who everyone else ignored. Jairus was a powerful man. Jairus had money, he had power, he had prestige, he had influence. This woman was the exact opposite. She's poor. Bible says she spent all her money on doctors and physicians trying to, trying to find a way to, to heal herself from this issue she's been having. She's alone because of her issue. 
She's considered unclean and rejected and avoided by everyone, even her family. Now, if this woman was married for 12 years, her husband couldn't touch her, couldn't give her a hug, couldn't hold her hand while walking down the street. She's, she's alone. She's rejected. She's been shamed by the city. Religious leaders believe that anyone who had an illness like this, they had it because they were punished by God. So she's ridiculed. She's mocked. But still, with, with all that baggage, she took an incredible risk to get to Jesus. Based on the Old Testament law, this woman was considered permanently unclean. And she made anything she touched unclean. So if you're walking down the street and you bump into her, now you're unclean. Everyone knew her. Can you imagine the response she got as she's trying to push her way through the crowd? The, 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 the ridicule she endured as she tried to get to Jesus. People are like, what are you doing here? Don't, don't touch me. Why don't you just go home? Nobody wants you here anyway. But she kept on. She pressed on to get to Jesus. Despite all of that, she was relentless to get to Christ. And it paid off in an instant. She, she touched his garment and immediately she's healed. Immediately she's made whole again. So here's the truth. You never know when God is going to step into your life to change that situation you've been praying for. For how long? I mean, there are people, we've, we've been praying for things and hoping for things and needing things for years, and, and it seems like God's silent and God doesn't care. And this woman, for 12 years, she prayed for God to heal her. For 12 years, she went to every doctor she could. For 12 years, she did everything possible to get healing, and God seemed silent to her. But 12 years later, God stepped in and God answered her prayer in an incredible way. You don't know. If you have a burden you've been carrying for years, don't give up on it. Run to Jesus. There is always hope in him. But let's keep reading. Look at verse number 49. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Remember Jairus, the guy he was going to see anyway? Coming from the synagogue's house saying, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Now look, notice there, he didn't say, don't worry about it, she's not dead. They don't know what they're talking about. He said, have faith, believe in God, and she'll be made whole. So he didn't deny she was dead. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. Now, who's he talking to? He's in the room alone with who? Peter, James, John, and the parents. So Peter, James, John, and the parents, they're in this room with this dead girl. They're crying because, of course, the parents are distraught because they just lost their daughter. Peter, James, and John, they're upset I'm, you know, because it's, it's just a, ter a tragic situation. So they're all crying and weeping. And Jesus says, guys, stop crying. She's not dead. She sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. Who laughed him to scorn? 
Peter, James, John, and the parents. This isn't the crowd outside. This isn't. This is. This is Peter, James, John's the parents. He says, "Don't don't worry. She's not dead. She's sleeping." Peter, James, and John, people who should know better, are laughing him to scorn. And he put out. He put them all out, and took her by the hand and called, saying, "Made arise." And her spirit came again, and she arose and straightway, and commanded her to give her meat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. So while, while Peter, or while Jesus is dealing with this seemingly irrelevant woman, someone, word comes to Jairus that his, his daughter has died. And he, after hearing this, Peter tells Jairus, don't worry about it. You believe, she'll be made whole. And he goes to his home. And I wonder what his disciples were thinking. I wonder what Peter, James, and John were thinking. If we hadn't dealt with that woman, we'd have made it in time. If we hadn't taken time to, 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 for him to ask who touched me, we'd have, we'd have been there by now. Why did he linger for this woman when we could have gone and helped this influential person? When Jesus arrives, he gets Peter, James, and John, and the parents, and he goes to the girl's room, and of course they're upset. They're crying, and Jesus says, don't, don't cry. Don't be upset. She's, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. They don't, especially the parents, don't find this funny. So they scold Jesus. Peter, James, and John mock him to, and laugh at him to scorn. They laugh at him for saying she's just sleeping. And Jesus, he ignores their lack of faith. He grabs the girl's hand and he raises her from the dead. Think about the story that this girl now has. She was dead and Jesus brought her back. Think about Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, the synagogue who is opposing Christ. He's a believer now. There's no way he can't be because he goes out and they, Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody what happened. But now this influential man who, who was part of the team that, that was opposing Jesus, now he's become a follower of Christ. The girl was 12 years old. The woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. God had waited 12 years for this day to come. He'd waited 12 years for these two stories to happen. How many of our prayers have a day that God has picked to answer our prayers, but we give up too soon? Both of these stories are incredible. Jesus heals a sick woman with no hope, and then he raises a dead girl with no hope. But I don't think either of those miracles are the most important part of the story. I think this is the most important part of the story. And he suffered no man to go in, save Peter, and James, and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. Why Peter? Peter just questioned him on the street. Peter just, just, just asked him, what do you mean who, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. That's a dumb question, Jesus. Peter's known for kind of rebuking Christ. He's done it before. And can you imagine rebuking the Son of God? I don't think Mary ever did that. You know, Jesus, little baby, Jesus got to do what, oh, Jesus is doing that. Well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. We're not rebuking God. But here's Peter, bold, arrogant, kind of dumb Peter, rebuking Jesus on the street. He just questioned Jesus in a public manner. 
He just laughed at Jesus when he said the girl was sleeping. So why is Jesus inviting this guy in to witness this incredible miracle? Here's why. Because God's plan for your life is greater than your lifetime. If you join God on mission. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we make our life last longer than ourselves by joining God on mission? Well, we've, that's been the whole point of the series, but I want to end with this truth. So how do we make our life on mission for God truly matter for all of eternity? Very simply, you bring someone with you. As you live the mission you were made for, don't go alone. Bring somebody along for the ride. Bring someone along that you can encourage and strengthen and teach and disciple. This may be the single greatest leadership lesson we learn from the life of Jesus. Jesus was without a doubt the greatest leader of all time, but he never wrote any books. He never held a public office. He never went outside of a small geographical area in the world. He only was on the public scene for three and a half years. He died at the age of 33. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, and there were over 2 billion people following him all over the world in hundreds and thousands of different languages. The movement that he started is growing faster now than ever before. That is incredible leadership. And he did it by bringing someone with him. As he lived on mission. Bring someone with you. You know how many times the Bible says throughout the New Testament, and as Jesus went, he took his disciples, or someone it names either three or four disciples, or it says he took his. You know how many times it says that? Me neither. You know why? Because I started counting and I stopped. Because it was a lot. Gee, now, were there times Jesus went alone? Yeah. There were times Jesus went alone, but every time he went alone, he went alone to be with God the Father. He didn't get alone to witness to people. He didn't get alone to work miracles. He didn't say, hey, y'all go back and I'm going to go out here and feed 5,000 people. Don't need y'all. I'll do it by myself. He, he got alone to be with God. He got alone to refresh himself. But whenever he was ministering, he always took someone with him. The evidence is abundantly clear that with incredible intentionality, Jesus brought people with him. Listen to the last words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, of course, this is the Great Commission. This is more, though, than witnessing to someone saying, one, two, three, pray after me. All right, I will see you later. Never see him again. This is discipleship. This is how we build the church and build Christianity by going and finding someone and witnessing to them and encouraging them. And yes, they get saved. But then when they get saved, you're like, okay, great. Now that you're a Christian, come with me and I'll teach you to do exactly what I just did. And you teach him and it's discipleship. But in the Greek, when you read it in the Greek, when he says, go ye therefore, the literal translation is as you go, make disciples. As you go to the gym, Make disciples. That means we should probably go to the gym. As you go to the grocery store, make disciples. As you go to work, make disciples. As you go throughout your day, 
make disciples. As you go about your life of following God, make disciples. And how, what's the best way to make disciples? To bring them along with you as you serve God. Now think about the different applications to this, this command. One is, as you go through your life, you are to intentionally share Jesus with those who do not know him as their Savior. And we've been hitting this for five weeks now. If you're shocked by that statement, you've been asleep for a very long time around here. You intentionally, as you go through your life, you look at people and God tells you, people who don't know him as your Savior, and it is your job to share Jesus with them. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. You can give them a track. You can start Bible studies with them. You can talk to them about God. You can invite them to church to hear the gospel. But you, you, you identify people who don't know God, and you intentionally share your faith with them. The other application is obvious by watching the life of Jesus. Don't just witness to people or disciple people you meet along the way. But as you're discipling someone, bring someone else along with you so they can see you do it. As you're doing ministry, don't do it alone. Bring someone with you so they can see you serving God. Jesus ends with promising that he will be with us always, even to the end of the earth. If we are fully surrendered to him, that doesn't mean that as we go through life, we bring Jesus with us. That means Jesus brings us with him as he leads us on the mission he has for us. His, his disciple, as he disciples us now, he invites us to do the same thing with others. Here's some practical example. Parents, a lot of us, and I, look, I'm, I'm preaching to me. This is an issue I've struggled with and I've been convicted about. You know, when I was like, well, who can I disciple? Who did God put in your house? Those kids? They're the ones you're supposed to disciple. They were, they were given to you to disciple first. Does the church help? Yeah, the church helps. We've got programs and things to help with it, but you know what? You got them a whole lot longer than we do. And they're going to learn a whole lot more from you than they'll learn from us. So those kids that God gave you, God gave them to you for you to disciple. You know what that means? When you go visit a shut-in, take your kids with you. Huh, but that means I gotta go visit a shut-in preacher. Duh. We got a bunch to choose from. And you know what the good thing about shut-ins are? They love kids. As you go witness to someone, take your kids. Well, that means I gotta witness. You're catching on. Yeah, you do. As you read your Bible, tell your kids what you learned. Again, you gotta read your Bible. As you pray, Share the answered prayers with your kids. As you walk with Jesus, bring them with you. As you serve in a ministry, invite someone to serve with you. Hey, you Sunday school teachers, invite someone to help you in your class. So, hey, I know you don't come to Sunday school class, but Sunday school, but hey, maybe you could come be my helper. That'll get them to come to Sunday school. Wow. You know what they're doing? They're learning as they see you. Whatever you do to serve Jesus, whatever you do to walk with Jesus, don't do it alone. Bring someone with you. With friends and family, bring them with you as you try to live out your faith. Invite them to join you at church. A recent Pew survey showed that the average believer in America brought zero people, zero lost people to church last year. 
the number was so low they rounded down. They're like, well, we, you know, people brought some people, but the, the, the percentage was so low. It's just like the average church person brings no lost people to church ever. Why is it so uncommon for us to bring someone with us? Maybe because we don't, we don't know what will happen. We don't know how it will be received. Maybe they'll, they'll reject it. Maybe they'll mock us. Maybe they won't be able to handle it. Truth is, there are two possible outcomes that can happen when you invite someone to come with you. First, you could be wrong about them. They could, you could bring someone on mission and they surprise you. They could accept the challenge. They could grow in the Lord. They could start producing fruit, and you could be amazed at what God's using them to do. Or you could be right, and they reject your efforts and even resent you for trying. But here's the thing. Failure isn't always bad. Oftentimes, God uses our failures to grow us. In fact, that's the primary way we grow. We grow through our failures, and we learn from them. How many of y'all have ever done something, failed at it miserably, and learned how to do it better? Everyone, we've all tried something. My kids, they'll do something, usually stupid, and they'll hurt themselves. And when I make sure they're not really, really hurt, I always ask them, did you learn anything? If they say no, I'm like, well, we're going to be back here in a little while. Because you need to learn not to skip a four-inch rock at your sister's head. Am I right? You need to learn these things, and you learn from failure. And sometimes failure is painful. Sometimes failure hurts. But if we learn from our failures, we're always growing God. So God uses them rejecting coming alongside you to grow you and to grow them. That's what happened in his Peter life. Peter had failure after failure after failure on his journey with Jesus. He, he rebuked Jesus. He lacked faith with Jesus. He denied Jesus. He had temper. He was prideful. But that's not how he ended. He witnessed Jesus raise a girl from the dead, and he learned lessons that helped him grow into the man God needed him to be. We see this story in Acts chapter 9. Now, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. Whom when they had washed, they laid her in the upper chamber, and forasmuch as Lydia was not a Joppa. And the disciples heard that Peter was there. They sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the windows stood by, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing, showing the coats and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known to all throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. God uses Peter to heal Tabitha the same way that Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. And thousands came to know Jesus in the area of Joppa because Jesus took Peter with him years earlier. We have no idea what God wants to do through us or through those that we bring with us. We have no idea how he'll use them to do it. Here's a fact. God's calling on your life is bigger than your lifetime. 
It's the only thing that will last. You know, the things that you're stressing about right now, because we all got them, that situation you're worried about, that problem you're facing, that bill you don't know how you're going to pay, in a couple years it's not going to matter. It's going to be gone. In 30, 40, 50, in, in a couple of generations, there will be people walking on this earth that are here because of you. They're your relatives. They're descendants of you. They won't even know your name. What you do for God is the only thing that will last. What is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to bring with you? Who is in your life right now that doesn't know God, but you will invite them to meet him and pursue him with you? They may laugh, but they laughed at Jesus. Who will you bring with you?